Great job, Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. I tell you what, what a morning we've had so far. I have a feeling that the enemy is not really wanting me to preach this message, and he's making it all kinds of fun for us today. But I'm telling you, it's going to be great, although we'll see here in a second. I'm trying to do something different, which is another thing we should not try to do, and that's to preach from using my notes on the computer to save trees. But we'll see how this goes. You know, we've had, a, we've had a fun summer going through the Psalms, and this is our final Psalm of the summer. Next week, we'll be doing something different. I'm not 100% sure yet what that's going to be, so you can pray with me on that. But let's open it up in prayer as we get ready to study the Word this morning together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, God, for the ability to come and meet and to bring glory to you, Father. We are here not because of anything that we have done, but because of everything that you have done for us. You are our God. There is nothing that we have, nothing that we can say, nothing that we do that comes without you. We are your idea. We wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for you. And we thank you, God, for your love, for your joy, for everything that you give us. And I just pray, God, that this morning as we look at your word, that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear what it is that you have to say. And Father, that you would speak through me, through the power of your Holy Spirit, and that your words would come forth and not mine. I praise you, and I thank you, and ask for your blessing. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning I want to start out, I want to start and ask a question. Is it okay to get mad at God? Is it okay to yell at Him? Is it okay to plead with Him about things that you see that might be in your mind an injustice? Is it okay to get angry with God? I want to start out and I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story about a friend of ours, Sherry and mine. She was the wife of a pastor, his name is Adrian House, and her name is Juanita. And it was the first church that we went to that um, when we first became serious with the Lord. God really used this family, Pastor Adrian and Juanita, to really, to really work in our lives and show us who he is. But she was a lady who went through a lot. And she was not very tall. I think she was probably about this big. And when you hear people talk about, you know, well, she's a pistol. Well, when they say that she's a pistol, you would be looking at Juanita's picture. She was a pistol. She was not someone who would hold back her opinion. But she loved everybody. But she lived a difficult life. A very difficult life. Saw a lot of suffering in her family. She had three sons and she has a daughter. In her life, her, one of her sons, Mark, when they were ministering in Nebraska, had a very bad car accident. He ended up surviving. But later on in his life, after they moved to Colorado, he was diagnosed with a form of leukemia. And this was back in the time when bone marrow transplants were just on the edge of happening. And Mark needed a bone marrow transplant in order to survive. 
his brother Paul was a perfect match. And so Paul decided to give his bone marrow to Mark, which was great. And he did. Now, in bone marrow transplants, if you're not familiar with it, I wasn't at the time, they basically take you to the point of death, both people, both the donor and uh, the recipient. Because your body has to be at a state where you cannot, I mean, so you have to be like in a bubble environment. You, one germ can kill you. That's how close to death you get. Well, they survived. They both survived. And Mark lived, and he's still alive today. That was many years ago. But Paul dealt with depression. And on Christmas morning, one morning, Adrian and Juanita found Paul in his car in the garage. He had committed suicide on Christmas Day. Shortly after that, shortly after Paul's suicide, Adrian had a stroke which he continued to preach, and he started to recover, but he still dealt with some paralyzing aspects on his left side. Later on, not long after that, he also got cancer. And then he died. And Adrian, or Juanita was angry at God. As you can tell, that she had been through a lot and seen a lot of suffering in her family. And she asked why God... Would you let this stuff happen to me? Well, unfortunately, that wasn't the end of her story. She ended up getting a flesh-eating disease in her feet, which caused the doctors to have to amputate parts of both of her feet. And then eventually, they had to remove one of her legs. So I tell you this story for one particular reason, really. Because as I was reading through Psalm 60 myself, it reminded me of her and her life struggles. Because from a human perspective, Juanita seems to have a right to complain about her life and the pain she had to endure. It seemed like that she had to deal with a lot more in her life than normal people have to deal with. She had her share of heartache and pain beyond anything that I know that in my life I've ever suffered. Maybe some of you here today can relate to her and her story. Maybe some of you online have even understood that life can be painful and it's hard. And we see here in Psalm 60, as Sherry read it, that David is pleading to the Lord and he's asking the Lord why the Lord seems to have left him and his people and his men to themselves. The Lord didn't seem to follow them into battle. And so they suffered losses in an apparent defeat. Here's the ironic thing with this story. Is that, is that when we look at the, at, at the text in the title that, that the psalm refers to, so, you know, when you look at, at the psalm, there's always a title. In this particular one, it says, To the choir master, according to the Shushan Eduth. I wasn't planning on reading it, so I'm just telling you, if I'm mispronouncing the words, that's okay. A victim of David for instruction when he strove with Abram Naharam and with Aram Zobah and when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. So he's in a battle. It doesn't line up because this lines up in the text if we go to 2 Samuel chapter 8. 
So if you have your Bibles this morning and you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 1 through 14. I'm not going to read it all, but as we go through this and you were to read it on your own later, you would see that it appears that David is actually winning every single battle that he's going through. In fact, if you go down to verse 6, and you read the second half of verse 6, it says, And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And then we jump all the way down to verse 13 of chapter 8 of 2 Samuel. And it says this, And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then when he put garrisons in Edom throughout the, all Edom, he put garrisons in all the Edomites became David's servants. And it says, and, Dave, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And so as I was reading this and preparing this morning, I had a curious question that came to me and I couldn't get rid of it. Why was David upset? Because in verses 6 and 14 in the text that goes with the psalm, it tells us that the Lord had given David victory wherever he went. What's the problem? Why is David feeling like they lost? Let's look at the first three verses and, and see David's plea to the Lord. He says, Oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. Keep in mind that the psalms are songs that are to be sung in worship. It seems like a hard thing to sing. And when we read this psalm in conjunction to 2 Samuel 8, and we read it in total, it's confusing why David would write this psalm after such a great victory. Well, then the Spirit opened my mind to what was really happening here, and actually, one note in my study Bible kind of triggered this whole thing for me. Because David didn't write this psalm, it appears, after the victory. He was writing it in the middle of the battle. And we know that in the middle of a battle, even when the end shows a great victory, there can be ebbs and flows. There can be times where it feels like that someone has breached the front line. And it looks like victory is far from certain. In fact, it looks more like defeat. So when we read the psalm in this context, it makes sense. Because as a faithful servant of the Lord and a faithful king of Israel, David is pleading to the Lord and laying out his heart to the Lord to save his people, his army. In the middle of this battle, he is wondering why the Lord appears to not be with them. Why the Lord seems to actually be against them. Letting the front lines be breached. The battle is raging. The chaos and noise is deafening. Almost making the earth appear to be quaking and fracturing around him. He sees his troops staggering around like they're drunk. Now I love war movies. And what comes to mind right away is that opening scene. If you've seen 
Saving Private Ryan, which is a depiction of D-Day. When the troops are out there coming on shore on their transport boats, and the doors are opening, and they're having to go out, and the Germans are shooting at them, firing artillery, bullets. You can hear them ringing in the movie around you. Zoop, 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 zoop. And the noise and the chaos is insane. And this is just a movie, so imagine being there in real life. What it was like. Now we realize that they didn't have those kind of weapons in David's day, but they still had bows and arrows. There were thousands of men, and so the sound of their footsteps coming at them made the ground shake like an earthquake. When is this going to end? David said. The officers, as David would be, or any officer in the, in the service of his country, would be wondering as he's watching his troops fall one after another valiantly trying to win and just being overwhelmed. You can imagine why he's pleading with the Lord, why are you doing this? In verse 2, David demands the Lord to fix the breach. Repair it as it's shaking violently. And David, as an honorable, God-fearing, loving king of Israel, is watching his troops being slaughtered in this battle, a battle they will win in the end, but seemingly getting routed in the moment and seeing his people, his men, getting killed. For what? Aren't we God's chosen people? It is tearing his heart out, and he is crying to the King of kings and Lord of lords and asking him, as only our Lord can do it, to fix it, to give them victory, to stop the killing. Make it stop. You know, in our lives, we, we find ourselves in battles all the time. We talk about those things all the time. We've talked about them a lot this summer. Especially as we've looked at some of these more difficult psalms that we've looked at. But let's not forget the spiritual battle that we're in for the land that the Lord has placed us in. Here in our country, our state, and even in the valley itself. We find ourselves right now in a tremendous war for the direction of our country. The last two years with the election and the pandemic, they've really accelerated society's disdain for spiritual things, especially Christianity. Jesus, Jesus is nothing but a hate monger and oppressor, the world would tell us. I have seen youth today who were brought up knowing Jesus in their family, turning away from their faith and believing the false rhetoric that our enemy is spewing forth against our Lord and Savior. It is heart-wrenching to witness this firsthand. Heart-wrenching. We see people putting their views of the world ahead of the, the truth of God's Word, the Bible itself. They say it is hateful to have absolute truth. And that the fables and the stories that we find in the Bible are just for the weak-minded and uneducated. I am neither of those, and I suspect neither are you. But we are at a war, and sometimes it seems like we are losing ground so fast, even though we know that the Lord has already won. And we wonder, 
when we will see the victory? How many have to go down in the process? Our hearts should be breaking for those that are lost. I've been an elder in the church for many years now, not just here. And I've seen this play out time and time again as I see people's lives, including in my own, watching and having my heart torn out because I see people giving in to the ways of the enemy and their lives and their marriages and their very souls just being slaughtered by sin. I see pastors today trying to dumb down the message of the cross to make it more friendly and inviting so their attendance will go up and their giving will increase and their own kingdoms will grow. Let me say this very clearly and please hear me. The cross of Christ is meant to be offensive. It is meant to be painful. Look at what happened there. There is nothing beautiful about it. It is meant to cause some people to turn away because it hits, it hits us right at the core of who we are and who we think we are. It cannot be dumbed down. The truth is too important. Sin and turning away from Christ is death. Turning to Christ and repentance leads to life. There is no other way to put it. I even see people here in this church who say they follow Christ. They say they love Jesus and yet they won't go and ask Him to change their behavior. To help them put a sin to death in their lives. Why, I wonder. Because they don't want to. They don't want to change. They are comfortable and content in their sin. Like the rich young fool who turned away from Jesus and Jesus watched him in love walk away because the rich young fool loved his things more than he loved Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And this leads to death, not life. And it's time for us to put the foolish things of this world aside and to decide to follow Christ with everything that we have. And this is where I became emotionally attached to what David is saying. Because I can't, Matt can't, no one can do this. No one can change your sinful behavior. It is between you and your Lord. All we can do is weep and pray and do the best that we can to shepherd you. But you have to do it. In the power of Christ, we can do it. But some of you will never change. Some of you will never give your lives to the Savior. And some of you will never go to heaven until you do. And all I can do is watch and pray. And like David, it breaks my heart. It does. And I plead with you, I plead with you to hear this message and seek to change. Seek the strength and power of our Savior to set aside your sins and seek to follow Him alone and allow Him 
to bring you the true joy that only He can give. The so-called pleasure of sin is fleeting, but the eternal life-giving blood and love and power of Christ is eternal. So David is in the middle of this war, and he is sensing defeat, and he cries out in what looks like a complaint to the Lord. But then in verses 4 and 5, David begins to call on what he knows about the Lord, the things that he has seen in his own life that we have talked about in the summer. He begins to see and call on the promises of God to gather and protect his people to himself. Verses 4 and 5 say this, You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. In verse 4, David recognizes that God has set up a banner for those who fear Him and recognize Him as their God to run to and to regroup in safety from the enemy's bows and arrows. The banner identifies where a company of soldiers is to go and gather and, and meet and regroup for their mission. David looks for and he sees the banner that the Lord has raised up. Now what is interesting is when David is calling for the banner of the Lord, the banner of the Lord, the Lord is our banner, is one of the names of the Lord. It's Jehovah Nissi. Jehovah Nissi, the Lord is our banner. It said one time, we find it in Exodus chapter 17, verses 15 and 16. In this passage is that famous passage where um, Joshua is fighting against the Amalekites. And as soon as Moses' arms are raised, the battle goes in his way. But as soon as his arms go down, the Amalekites start to win. And so they kept Moses' arms raised up during the battle until they won. And in the end of this, at the end of the battle, the Lord tells Moses to record what happened. And this is what he says starting in verse 15. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Moses knew who his banner was and the banner for his people. Moses knew he was incapable of leading the people of God that had been entrusted to him unless he led them under the banner of Jehovah Nissi. We are incapable of leading or moving forward unless we are under the banner of Jehovah Nissi, our Lord, our God. Christ is our banner. In warfare, like we talked about, it's a banner is raised as a marker to go to for safety, to regroup, to get our mission and move forward in battle, to get rest to reestablish our position. It is a place to run to. And as we've just talked about, Jesus Christ is our Savior. And He is the one that we run to for help. He is the one that we run to so we can gather together for our mission. 
to take this message of hope out into the world and get the instructions on how to carry it out. It is he who has the authority alone to guide his people. John 6, 37, Jesus says this, And all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus, and he will never cast you away. And those are not my words. Those are his words. Psalm 91, 1 through 4 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. And he will cover you with his pinions. And under his wings, under his wings, you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. And if you're like me, you wondered what a buckler was, I did look it up, and it is a small round shield. So who do you say is your refuge and your fortress? Do you dwell in the shelter of the Most High? Do you abide in the shadow of the Almighty? Is God in whom you trust? Who is your shield? He has given us deliverance by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Run to the cross. Find your banner. Find your hope there. And Jesus will cover you and shield you with His mighty arms outstretched, dripping with His blood of forgiveness and protection. Look into His eyes and see the pain of love that he has for you in them as he looks back to you. Where do we turn? Where is our banner? Who is our shield? It is Christ. As we talked about earlier, we were at war. And we will be until the return of Jesus. In war there are casualties. We see that throughout church history. Many have been martyred in the name of the Lord. I found an article in Christianity Today from February 2020. In the Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary estimates that approximately 90,000 Christians were martyred in 2019. 90,000 Christians. And this is how they define a martyr. As believers in Christ who have lost their lives prematurely in situations of witness as a result of human hostility. 90,000. That's one every six minutes. In my message this morning, approximately seven people will die in the name of Christ. Yesterday, Zane and Hannah Patterson were married in a beautiful ceremony. They were married in Florida, and it was a very Christ-honoring ceremony that reflected their heart for each other as well as their heart for the Lord. And as I kept thinking about how this world has perverted marriage that was designed to be between one man and one woman, this was something that God designed right from the very beginning all the way back in Genesis. 
The time is coming very soon. And some would say that it already has come. When government officials in this country are going to try and force churches and pastors to abandon the biblical view of marriage and perform same-sex weddings. The Equality Act, which will redefine LGBTQ people into a protected class, is finding its way through Congress now. It has already passed the House. It is just waiting the Senate to vote on it. And this will allow people, including young people, to change their sex given them by their Lord at birth to whatever they want. It will try to force pastors and churches. In fact, it won't try. It will, unless we take a stand to perform same-sex marriages and to hire LGBTQ people for our staff. There will be no room for religious objection. It allows men who define themselves as women to compete against women in sports. Like I said, this is already passed. And we read this and we go, where is God in this? This is not God. Can he not stop it? He can. He might. But I'm telling you, at some point, it's likely to happen. COVID itself has allowed governments around the world the opportunity to, un to exercise unprecedented authority against churches. You may have heard of Pastor Tim Stevens, who's at Fairview Baptist Church in Calgary who was arrested multiple times because he failed to comply with the government officials in Canada who would not allow his church to meet outside with masks on during the pandemic. I don't know if you know this, but even here in La Junta in 2020, churches were told by the health officials that we couldn't meet in person. And if we did so, they threatened to send the police here to break up our church services and to arrest pastors in La Junta. Fortunately, so far the Supreme Court has found in favor of churches and that hasn't happened. But I am telling you, the time is coming. It has now come. When we have to make choices on who we are going to serve. Jesus or our government. It is coming. And this church, I promise you, will follow Christ. We will not bow to what is easy. Because Jesus is our Savior. He is our banner. He is our hope. Charles Spurgeon says this regarding raising the banner of Christ. Well, brethren, you and I are committed to the onward course. We cannot go back. Neither can we turn to the right hand or to the left. What shall we do then? Shall we lie down and fret? Shall we stand still and be dismayed? No. In the name of the Lord, let us again set up our banner, the royal standard of Jesus the crucified. Let us sound the trumpets joyously and let us march on not with the trembling footsteps of those who know that they are bent upon an enterprise of evil, but with the gallant bearing of men whose cause is divine, whose warfare is a crusade. Courage, my brethren, 
Behold, the angels of God fly in our front. And lo, the external God himself leads our van. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried out into the midst of the sea. What a beautiful message from Charles Spurgeon. We will not fear, no matter what, because the God of Jacob is our refuge, and under his wings we will find the banner. These next three verses really lays it out as David reminds God of who his people are. Verses 6 through 8, let's read them together. God has spoken in his holiness. With exultation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the vale of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Morab, Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. We see in verses 6 and 7 that David is confessing to God that he knows that God protects his people. These tribes he mentions are his people, Manasseh, Ephraim, and Judah, all God's chosen people, all part of Israel. Gilead was a place of testimony that's mentioned in Genesis 31 when Jacob fled from Laban and made a pillar and a heap of rocks as a witness that God will judge between the two of them. Only the Lord has the ability to judge, David says. He knows, as we have talked about extensively today, that the Lord will not forget his people and he will protect them if they call upon him for, for help. In verse 8, he mentions the enemies of God's people, Moab, Edom, and Philistia. Moab is whom God will see. He will use him as a wash basin. And you wonder, well, what does that mean? It means that he is going to use him as a wash basin to wash the feet of Israel. It is a complete act of humiliation and servanthood for Moab. They will be humbled before the Lord. And then God said that he will cast their shoe on Edom, meaning God will claim the land of Edom as his own for his people Israel. It is a symbol of casting a shoe of, of transferring of ownership from one entity to another. In other words, God is transferring Edom to himself, and he will reign. And the same is with Philistia, through a shout that they too will bow to the authority of the Lord. No nation is above the Lord's authority. Psalm 72.8 says, May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. There is no place on earth that is not under the authority of our Lord, no matter what our leaders might think. We need not fear that God will forget us, his people. Because what God has chosen, he cannot and will not unchoose. You are his for eternity. You belong to him. 
So no matter what the world, no matter what we throw at ourselves to try and defeat us, Christ is always our refuge and strength. And we need to remember to run to the shadow of the Almighty for our salvation and protection. The cross of Christ gives us assurance of victory over sin and death. And repentance from our sins is our proper response back to Him as a sign of our humility to Him. Our surrender of ourselves to His authority and the power of Christ because He is on the throne, not us and not anyone else. We need not be concerned with who is in charge of this world because as we saw, there is no place or government on earth that is not under the control of our God. So I ask you to stop the madness and give in to Christ. And if you haven't, bow before His throne because you will one day anyway. You will one day, either on this side of the grave or the other. But it is only on this side of the grave where you find salvation. If you wait to the next world, it's too late. I plead with you, bow before the throne of Christ now. Bow before him now. If you don't know how, come and see me after service and I will show you. It's not as hard as you think. As we look at these last four verses, in verses 9 to 12, we see that David makes a, a heartfelt plea to the Lord for his people. Once again, David, David shows us that the hero in this battle is not David. It is the Lord. He states this in verses 9 through 12. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our foes. Again, we see in verses 9 and 10, we see David watching his army struggle against their foe like he did in verses 1 and 2. He wonders if God has rejected them and that is why they are losing the battle. He shows his shepherd heart. He's putting the concern of his people and his love for them in full view again. But then in verses 11 and 12, he changes. He pleads with the Lord to grant them victory. If we look at verse 11, we see that David is confessing to God that trying to win and gain the victory, as he calls it, through the salvation of man, is futile. Because our efforts are nothing. We can do nothing. We cannot save ourselves. It is useless for us to try. It is vain for us to try to do so. So why do we continue to try to do that? Why do we continue to reject God's help and in vain try to do this all alone on our own? Verse 12 helps us to see the answer more clearly. With God we shall do valiantly. It is He who treads the foe. He wins the battle. 
He is the war hero. Let's look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 8. Ephesians 1, 3 through 8. If you're not sure where that is, General Electric Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Ephesians 1, 3 through 8 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Let that sink in. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, when did he choose you? Before the foundation of the world. Why did he choose you? That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, be holy. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise and the glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. We are his. He chose us. He is the one who gives us the victory. Let me ask you again, who is it who treads our foe? Who is it who wins the war? Is it us? It is Him. It is the Lord alone. Proverbes 21, 30-31 tells us, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. The victory belongs to the Lord. And that is why David went to God and pleaded with him when it looked like they were in the middle of a defeat. We have seen today that God alone is our banner. That we go to him for salvation. That he provides us the victory. That he chose us. That he cannot unchoose us. I want you to know the end of Juanita's story. A couple years ago, Juanita passed away. Sherry and I hadn't seen her in many, many years. But at her funeral, it was amazing. On the stage, they had her wheelchair, her cane, her prosthetic leg, and her wig. And we wondered, why in the world would they do that? Well, as Juanita, to know her, you'd have to understand. She knew she was going to die, and she actually wrote out everything that she wanted to be said in the funeral, the songs and everything. And she wanted those things there because she wanted people to know where she was going, she wasn't going to need them because God gave her the victory over the battles she faced in her life. 
In the end of our story, 2 Samuel 8.14 says this, And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you. And we're just grateful for the psalm. Grateful for this message, Lord, that you've given us through David. You are an awesome and holy and just and righteous God whom we love with all of our hearts. Lord, you are our banner. You are the one who gives us victory. You are the one who helps us in the time of trouble. You are the one, Lord, that we can run to for salvation. You are the one who defeated death and sin on the cross. You are the war hero. We are, are useless without you. We can do nothing without you. We wouldn't even be here except for you. And we are grateful for that, Lord. And we are thankful for you. Lord, let us find our hope in you. Let us find our victory in you. Let us not toy with our faith. Lord, let us take it seriously and strive to put to death the things that are not glorifying to you in our lives. That we would repent from our sins, Lord, and bow to your authority as our Lord God Almighty. I pray, God, that if there is someone here this morning who does not know you as Lord and Savior, who has not taken that step of faith, I pray, God, that this morning that they would do so and that they would come and see me after service, Lord, and make that decision for Christ today. If there is someone here this morning too, Lord, who maybe has been distant from the Lord for a while and would like to come forward and and talk to me about giving their life back to you and getting themselves back on the right track, I pray, God, that this morning they would do that as well. May your hope be found in our hearts and our minds. We praise you and thank you, Lord. In your holy Son's name, Jesus Christ, amen.